Hello and welcome to another episode of Soundstage Access, a podcast that brings you in-depth to discuss many of the complex, beautiful, and creative sides of filmmaking. I'm your host, Brando Benetton, and my guest this week is David Arnold, an Emmy Award-winning film and TV composer whose credits include the BBC series Sherlock, starring Benedict Cumberbatch, Independence Day, for which he also won a Grammy, and five different films in the James Bond franchise. In today's conversation, we discuss a wide range of topics. How avoiding a formal music training in favor of scoring student films in his mid-twenties prepared David for his launch into the film industry, and why David chooses not to listen to film music composed by his fellow peers, how making a record in 1995 really his own love letter to the James Bond franchise led him to be hired by the series producers and score five entirely different films including Casino Royale, and why when Daniel Craig replaced Pierce Brosnan, the music itself for 007 had to evolve, David's creative relationship with director Edgar Wright, and in what ways Hot Fuzz was inspired by the films of Tony Scott, and much more. Folks, this was one of the very first interviews we recorded, and my first in London especially for the show, which is why I'm so happy we're finally able to bring it to you. Just as a heads up, there may be some outside traffic noise creeping in, but that's what recording an episode in the busy Hampstead area will get you. I want to also give one more special shout out to Eric Boss, who has been wonderful in mixing every single one of these episodes with such love and care. As always, if you'd like to hear new content, you might want to hit that subscribe button to find all previous episodes from Soundstage Access. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter to find out which guests we'll be interviewing next. But now, without further ado, let's go to our conversation. David, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. I'd like to start with a simple question. What's one of the most exciting aspects about beginning to write a score and one of the most terrifying when it's later time to hand it over for the final mix of the movie? The most exciting part is being asked because at that point you have the the thrill of a new piece, the possibility of it being the best thing you've ever done, possibly the best film that's ever been made in the universe, in the history of all films ever. So I think with, with a film for me, it's like it's always hugely exciting when someone says, do you want to do this? Because then your mind starts turning over and you start thinking of the possibilities and the things that you could do and the things that it could be. And for me, the most terrifying part is... I mean, that lasts about three and a half seconds, I'd say, that feeling. And then the terrifying part happens immediately after that, at second four, which is, I've actually got to do it now. You know, I can't be talking about it. I can't be going into interviews and meeting directors and talking kind of broad brush strokes about that sensibility of the piece or, you know, all these things that you do when you're ever trying to build a dialogue with a director from scratch. You talk about yourself, you talk about what you think about things then all of that is irrelevant. The only thing that matters from that point on is what are you handing in? And that's entirely squarely on your shoulders. So I find the entire process terrifying until if the thing comes out in the cinema and I know I'm not going to have to go back and do any more. <laughs> 
People may or may not know that you don't have a formal degree in film composing, but you did score a lot of student films when you were in your mid-20s. What did that teach you about yourself as a composer before officially stepping into the film business? I think, and it's one of the things that I talk about a lot when I sort of go to colleges and or just do sort of general talks about film music and film, is that there is an expectation that as a musician or a composer, you will be able to deliver what you say you can deliver so that you are in charge of the faculties that will produce a score, whether it's like orchestral or electronic, rock and roll or jazz, whatever it might be, and however it might sound, that there is an expectation that you can produce the work. And that, to a certain extent, you can educate people in those things. You know, you can teach them to play, you can teach them to write, you can teach, you can, they can learn about all these different sort of forms of music. But what you can't be taught is taste and application and understanding. And I found that by working on a lot of films, your constant analysis of what goes on in a movie is like a never-ending process. You know, from the first frame to the last, you're, you're, you're making an effort to understand everything that's going on and the reasons why they're going on. And that's a lot of questions you need to be asking. And I think if you're sitting down, possibly writing music for music's sake, you're not going to be asking those questions because there's no need for it. There's no demand for it. You know, But a film demands that you think like that and it demands that you understand it. And I do think that probably the best way to learn is to do it you know i mean because if you took any any music graduate who is capable of writing music and asked them to write you a piece based on a poem or a phrase or a statue or an event or something like that, they'll come up with something impressionistic but what you don't have is the demand to make that stick to a moving picture to to a story um and that's a sort of very different set of skills and i think you can learn the mechanics of it but the taste that's involved in the storytelling that's involved i think you probably you know, you need to have seen a lot of films, but you need more importantly to have applied yourself to the understanding of why those films work in the way that they work and what they're trying to do. There is a discipline to the mechanical side of it in terms of, you know, learning the craft of scoring in whatever form that is. Um, but a lot of it is applying your taste to a picture. You know, there are people that have done amazing scores that, that don't work with orchestras, you know, that work electronically or work with sound. And that's as valid an approach as, as anything. But what you can't teach people is why are you doing that there? Because there is no right or wrong. You know, it's like you could get 30 composers to do a scene and there might be a thread tying them together in terms of what they think the scene is about. But, you know, I mean, if you put Trent Reznor and Hans Zimmer and John Williams in the same room and got them to score the same scene, you know that you would get three very different approaches to the same scene. Now, there is no right or wrong in that, is there? And you don't teach someone that when you see this kind of scene, this is what you need to do. So every piece is unique and you need to know yourself as much as you need to know the movie and you need to know your craft. You need to understand the reason why the notes are there and what they're doing. Because someone's going to ask you, you know, if they don't like it or they can't understand it, you're going to need to explain why you've done what you've done the way that you've done it. And if you don't understand that, then they're not going to have a chance of doing it and it might lead to problems later. As a child, I remember listening to film scores even before seeing the final movie in cinemas. Are you, David, able to study and enjoy scores as pieces of art that are fully separated from a film? 
Well, I used to buy a lot of soundtracks when I was starting, and I used to listen to a lot, and I used to watch a lot more films. But once you start working, then obviously the amount of time you have available sort of disappears. And to a certain extent, I think the worst thing you could be doing as a film composer is listening to other film composers, because, you know, there's a certain amount of self reference that goes on anyway with temp tracks you know so you're kind of sometimes pointed towards other people's work anyway and I think the last thing you want to do is your influence to be other film composers I think listen to a lot of music yeah definitely but I don't listen to film scores I, I think there's lots of you know possibly more interesting things going on musically outside of film and I think film music is film music you know and, and, and the music that I listen to is music that isn't necessarily constricted by what a film can demand of you it doesn't have to be a certain length doesn't have to be a certain speed it's just there to exist as as a piece of music and that I'm just talking about any, you know anything from you know sort of orchestral through to electronic to you know sort of folk music anything I like great music no matter what the form is and I like it free of a constraint and then sometimes there are sounds or there's an approach that you kind of take with you and that you really like. And, you know, at some point you think, oh, that sort of thing might work for this movie. You know, I, I heard that a long time ago. There was this particular sort of sound that was happening that felt like it could sort of stick to this movie. So maybe that's my starting point for writing. You know, people would say, you know, we want a soundtrack that sounds like the Beatles, for instance. So, you know, you kind of know where to start with that. But uh, I'm, I'm not sure it's such a good idea to, to listen to other film composers because, you know, most of the time everything is referenced to something else. Well, you briefly touched on the concept of temp music when a director and an editor use previously existing music to score an in-progress cut of a new movie. And the danger being that over the course of the weeks and the months, they fall in love with the specific cues that they've chosen, which obviously don't belong to either them or the project. And they ask you, the composer, to ultimately write something that sounds very similar to that. What's your take on temp music and does it ever happen nowadays to be handed a clean cut of a movie with no music at all? Um, I always prefer it. I, actually, you know, I don't prefer it. If it's a good temp, it can do an awful lot in terms of informing you of the intentions of the filmmakers. That's at its best. And if you have confident filmmakers who then say, this is a guide, you know, we kind of like it for this particular pace or this particular feel, but go and do your own thing, knowing that this is kind of the ballpark that we're in. I think that's fine. I think the problems arise, and this is so common, and everyone's probably talked about it a million times before, but, you know, when people fall in love with a particular piece of temp that's stuck on a scene and then it's almost impossible to get away from it and they kind of want that rewritten in a slightly different way. Uh, everyone knows that happens, and sometimes you can even hear it when you're watching the film. You go, like, I know what that was temp with. And that's disappointing, certainly from a composer's perspective. And I think probably any composer that ends finds themselves in that position would be disappointed that that was where they were being pointed. Because there's a level of trust which sort of disappears at that point, isn't there? You know, saying we don't really think that you can come up with anything better than we've already discovered. That's the worst part. And the other thing I found is that, you know, when you get editors that cut to temp, it's not really working to the strength of the picture as much as it is to the strength of the picture with the music attached. And sometimes when you take that temp out, you're watching it and you feel that perhaps you're hanging on a shot for a couple of frames too long or perhaps it cuts away from something a bit too quick because the temp that was in there had a thing that happened, which when in combination made that cut okay. I'm not saying that that's a bad way to work, but from a compositional perspective, you're even more kind of hogtied by the, the dynamics uh, of the temp. And if you're trying to do something yourself and trying to do something original, which flows in its own way and relates to the film rhythmically in a different way, but still covers the same ground. It's a bit like having one hand tied yeah. behind your back and being in a fight. 
Some composers actually admit that they don't really mind when the music the director has selected for the temp score is actually from the same composer. Maybe some old tracks the composer created for a previous project he or she worked on. There's almost a more organic transition when you are retemping yourself. Oh, that's the worst thing. Yeah, I can't stand it. Because every time I see something that I've done in, in another film, it gives it a new perspective and it makes it feel fresh and exciting, you know, because I'm so used to seeing it. When I say so used to, you know, I mean, my experience, because most of the time you do this and you, when you write and you move on to the next and you never really look at it again. But sometimes when you see a piece of music that you've done and it's used for something else, it gives it a different sort of life, like a song in a movie, you know, Stuck in the Middle with You has a completely different feel now because it was used in Quentin Tarantino's film, Reservoir Dogs. Um, and before that, it was just a great song, but now it has a different connotation. So when you see the uh, some of my work in, in, in Temps, I always sort of writhe a little bit because sometimes I think like, oh, I like, I like the way that that has changed. I like the way that that's got a new life of its own, the music, because it's with these new images. And then sometimes it's difficult to get away from it, you know, and then you end up writing something a bit like what you've already written before. So I'm, a, I'm always happy when, when people temp it with other people's scores because I know I won't sound like them and, um, you know, hopefully it will sound like me, but it's a tricky area. And I know like a lot of composers have different ideas about it. Some people hate it. Some people don't mind it. I don't mind it if it works well. One of the challenges I think at this sort of level of filmmaking is that if they've chosen a attempt that they are absolutely in love with, it's kind of your job to make it work, but not make it like the attempt. You know, that's a, it's another challenge. The first specific project I want to ask you about is Tomorrow Never Dies in 1997. This being the beginning of five James Bond films you scored. You're in your mid-30s, and I believe there's a story behind your love for Bond and how the dream of making a record ultimately led to you landing this 11-year role in the franchise. I think there's several different paths to this, routes to this, and my, my understanding of it is... After I finished Stargate, which was eventually picked up and distributed by MGM, they knew that I was a sort of massive James Bond fan. And they were just doing Goldeneye at the time. And the head of music asked me if I'd like to come up and see the first trailer for Goldeneye, the teaser trailer, where Pierce walks into frame and shoots the letters away and it ends up with 007. He walks right up to the camera and he goes, were you expecting someone else, right? A, a work of genius. And then the music kicked in. You were expecting someone else? And they told me then that Eric Serrara had just been hired to do Goldeneye. And I was saying, look, if ever, you know, John Barry or anyone, do, you know, walks away from this or doesn't want to do it, you know, I'd love to just be considered even. So then two years later, when they were prepping for Tomorrow Never Dies, actually shooting Tomorrow Never Dies, I think John couldn't do it for whatever reason. And in that period, Stargate had come out and been successful and Independence Day had come out and been like really successful. And I won a Grammy for that for best score. And in that gap... I'd also made this record of cover versions because like growing up in the UK, it's like music, radio was a huge part of everything that I love. And I love records and I love songs and I love films. So I thought like, well, I'd done a few films, like three or four films, I think it was. And I've always wanted to make a record, but I knew I didn't have that much time. So I thought I'd do a record of covers because I wouldn't have to write it with people that I really liked, you know, people whose records I'd bought and I'd owned and people whose work I'd liked. Because I'd had, a, you know, a bit of success with the, with the Buick record and with Stargate and, you know, people then answered the phone, you know, before I tried to do these things. And of course, being a nobody, you know, no one's going to say, yeah, I'd love to do this with you. I mean, I paid for it myself. I started doing it myself. You know, I got most of it done without a record company. 
And I just phoned up people that I liked and I said, do you fancy, you know, making a covers, bro? Like just Bond records trying to make it at that point in 1995, 96, like a contemporary version, you know, a different take on them. And the people who said yes said yes. And we started doing it. Now, because I didn't want to tread on anyone's toes. And I didn't want anyone to be offended. And also, I wasn't sure of the legality of what I could and couldn't do with Bond because I know they're very, very protective of the brand. So I sent like two or three songs off to them on a Manchester Secret Service with Propeller Heads, Diamonds Are Forever, with David McCalmont. And I think The Spy Loved Me. I'd sent that to the offices of Bond, you know, Eon, um, to Barbara Broccoli and Mike Wilson. And, you know, I said, like, what are the, what can I or can't, can't I do? It's like, you know, in terms of what you can say, what you can show on the sleeve, because I know there are copyright issues. And I said, I just want to, you know, let you know that this is what I'm doing. Big fan of the films. Anyway, so we sorted all that out and that was all fine. And then they started using the propeller heads uh, on Her Majesty's for the, the rough assembly of the car park chase in the BMW, multi-story car park in Tomorrow Never Dies. And they really liked the way that that was working. And then I won a Grammy, and then all of a sudden it's like, well, we need a composer. John wasn't doing it. They wanted a change from Eric. They wanted to get, in a way, back to a sort of more classic sound, I think. And they knew I was a big fan, and they liked what they'd heard of the record. And I'd done two films that were big movies. So, in a way, it was a, I suppose, it was an easier choice at that point because I'd done all these things and I had presented work that sounded like, you know, it could work in a sort of modern vernacular. I didn't do Shaken and Stirred as a calling card for, for doing a Bond movie. I did it because I loved the songs and I loved the people that I did it with. And I was happy for it to be a standalone thing. But I think the combination of that record coming out, doing really well, Independence Day doing huge amounts of money at the box office and winning awards and me being extraordinarily enthusiastic about Bond um, perhaps made the choice a bit easier because they knew I could handle a big movie and they knew I loved the, the, the series. So that's my take on what it is Barbara Broccoli has said that you know she was buying um, CDs at a record shop in London you know from various composers while considering who should be doing it and uh, that the guy who was serving her suggested that I that she listened to my stuff I was interested to ask you about the musical evolution in the Bond franchise, specifically from Die Another Day, which was the last Pierce Brosnan movie, to Casino Royale, which was the first film with Daniel Craig. Was there a clear transition that was expected from you on a musical and creative level over the course of these movies? Well, it was my own expectation, I think, in a way, because it felt like with those three Pierce movies, we'd kind of gone as far as we could with that particular sort of style. You know, particularly the kind of electronic hybrid thing. And obviously Die Another Day was a very out there sort of movie in a way. You know, I mean, it's, it's I suppose it's closer to Moonraker in that it was a lot of sort of fantasy sci-fi thing. You know, the giant space laser and the remote control thing and, and, and manipulating your DNA to look like someone else. You know, it's, it was a very sort of high concept thing. And, and the music had to match that, you know, in Casino Royale, we knew we were kind of back to page, you know, the first page. And in a way, we had to think about it as a blank page. So this was like before Dr. No, this was before the James Bond theme had even been written. So it's like, what's the genetics of that? So I thought I'd probably just go a bit more back to basics with it and respond to the character uh, as he is, rather than the one that we got to know. In a way, the score is a journey to the James Bond theme.
Let me ask you about your creative process. When it comes to composing, you have described it this way. Quote, the job is you in a room by yourself with the film trying to respond to it. When or how does music come to you and how has your process evolved over the course of the years? Yeah, the ideas come constantly. I find it more often when I'm not thinking about music. I find myself having something in my head. I mean, before I used to just carry around a recording Walkman and, record, you know, just sing the things into that. Now, of course, you just do it on your phone. You know, once before you had recording devices on your phone, then I used to phone my own answer machine and sing it into that. All those kinds of things. And everyone, every writer I know does that. Comedians do that. You know, they think of something funny while they're walking around, they'll write it down. So at the end of the day, you might have three funny things. Me, at the end of the day, I might have one or two ideas. You know, then you listen to them again a few days later and you make a decision whether or not they were just stupid ideas or terrible ideas or possibly good ideas or someone else's ideas. You know, you don't really know. You have to kind of get away from that and then and go through the, the filter of is it any good or not. If you're really lucky, it arrives fully formed. You know, and that's happened a couple of times with me where the whole thing's just sort of dropped into my lap somehow and, and it was just a, a, a scramble to get it onto a page or into the computer or whatever it was before it disappeared. Uh, and it never really changed. You know, it's like, it was like, a, it was a complete idea is from start to finish. Great. Fantastic. And other ones, the genesis of an idea has kind of landed. It might be a couple of notes and then it sort of wavers off and goes off and you have to spend two or three weeks really digging it out, you know, on a keyboard, trying to figure out really where it's going and if it's any good or not. So there are no rules to that, but I do keep, a record of everything that I think of, I just sing it into a machine. So I've got, I just got loads and loads and loads of little ideas. Most of them I never use again, you know. Sometimes the process of getting to the idea that you do need means you kind of get these other things out of the way first, you know. So you might have a 20 ideas, but actually only the 20th one is any good. You know, the 19th is, is all the crap you've got in your room, you know, before you find the safe at the end with the, with the real stuff in. If you find yourself to be struggling on a creative level, or maybe you're running out of time, do you find yourself going back and trying to repurpose old cues that you haven't used, but that could very well work for the music you need to deliver right now? I think it's true of me and I think probably a lot of other composers that, you know, the first thing you do is, have I already got something which is going to work for this? Because it's a lot of hard work writing music, you know, it's stressful and anything you can do to make it less stressful, you're going to try. But 99% of the time, it's not, you know, sometimes you might try it, you might dig out an old idea. Uh, I find a lot of the time, a lot of these things end up, you know, turning the songs or, but you know, if I'm writing with another artist or something like that, you know, there might be little phrases or something that might be the starting point. But films are so specific, you know, they kind of speak to you and you have to respond to it personally. I suppose if you're making a meal for someone, you've got no idea what they like. You say, well, I know I've made this meal. And if that person comes in, if you made fish and they say, well, I hate fish and you can't give it to them, even though it might be the most fantastic fish dish you've ever created in your life. So, you know, you have to work specifically to the film that's in front of you. Sometimes ideas can travel, you know, sometimes with a bit of manipulation or something, you know, like a good melody is a good melody. But more often than not, you, you have a look at these ideas and you think, mm, not really. And then you basically just have to get down and lock the door and uh, the most horrible thing of all, which is, which is looking at that blank page. There's a beautiful pattern of loyalty through collaboration when one looks at your career. One of the directors you've worked with the most being Roland Emmerich, for whom you scored Independence Day and Godzilla. In your projects together, you're experimenting musically to deliver a sense of the epic. How has your creative dialogue evolved over the years? Well, the first one was Stargate, actually. That was, that was quite cacophonous a post-production 
thing and there was a lot of stuff going on there wasn't a distributor when we started working on it there were a couple of editors who came in and tried different things there were different cuts roland was i think pulled from pillar to post a little bit in terms of the demands on his time as very often directors are when you've got a big movie so i was dealing more with dean uh, devlin in terms of sort of playing him ideas but in those days, so this is 1994, I think, you wouldn't demo every single cue. You know, I'd, I'd written the sort of the main themes and I'd played them to them, they liked them. And I'd sort of roughly demoed three or four sequences so they could see kind of where it was going. I think Dean himself had said that they were on the plane to London on the way over and he turned to Roland and said, we haven't heard any of this music, we don't know what it's like. And they didn't really hear it until we played it in the studio. I mean, luckily they liked it, but quite easily it could have gone the other way. But I think the success of that, the way it worked, I mean, there was a huge amount of ambition, I think, in the score. And it was lucky that, you know, the ambition of the movie in terms of its scale matched, you know, well, I didn't match it. I mean, I was written because I was looking at this giant flying pyramid. Grand, of course it is. It's, it's, it's epic. I always said it was like Star Wars meets Lawrence of Arabia. And so when it came to Independence Day, there was a level of understanding and trust that we'd already had. I mean, we basically did the same thing. I wrote a bunch of themes, sent them to them, they liked them, and then I started putting it to the picture. And same thing, I, I did a few cues so they could hear where it was going, and, and they didn't really hear that much of it until we until we recorded it. Spent more time on the President's speech than any other, because I knew that was like really important for them to get that right in terms of the tone and in terms of the approach and where the breathing was you know where the weight felt so we went we went over that a couple of times at demo stage but they were fairly crude demos you know i mean it was like in those days there wasn't the level of quality that you can get in samples nowadays so it was reasonably crude but it was the music you know you could hear what it was going to be and that all worked great and to a certain extent godzilla was the same you know it's slightly trickier because independence day was very much about a thing and i think godzilla was less about I think got the Independence Day was Roland's thing is what would happen if you woke up and you found a 25 mile diameter spaceship floating outside your window. That's your kind of starting point. And Dean's was if there is a common threat to the world, could we pull together as one to combat it? And both of those ideas were in the movie and were the movie. And it was very much about from a, a sort of an American perspective, but everyone involved in it was largely not American. It was interesting because Dean was Filipino, Roland is a German, Patrick Totopoulos, the, the creature designer, was Greek. I was British, you know, so a lot of the sort of creative people involved in that film were not American. So we were kind of looking at it a bit from an outsider's perspective. And I've always said, like, it's not many films with more saluting that are in that film, you know. So that kind of informs you. It's like you write what is effectively a national anthem, you know, and the Independence Day sort of main theme, I suppose, is a sort of national anthem for the America that is in that movie. And then all the other sort of sub-themes and B-themes were, you know, to do with specific characters. But it felt like a film that would have a theme for the movie, the same as Stargate did. The main Stargate theme didn't belong to the characters. It belonged to the film. So that kind of created an umbrella under which everything else happened. And with Independence Day, like, the main theme was that as well. There was a sort of flyer's theme and a themes for different people. But the... was kind of the movie's theme. And Godzilla had to be, I suppose, the theme of the movie was for the creature. But what was unusual about that is that the creature disappeared for huge periods of time in the film. So then you were left with other characters kind of looking for it. But the process never really changed over those three films. It, it, didn't, it, didn't, it, it was never really any different. You know, there was a lot of uh, faith and trust and we all knew what was going on. I did thoroughly enjoy all of them. We had a great, I had a great time with them.
It was hard work, I have to say. Yeah. I mean, like really, really hard. And we did an awful lot of writing. And I had to live in America for each of them, um, for whatever it was, three or four months, five months at a time. Uh, they were doing all the posting in the US. And, and um, you know, I think it's good to be on top of that sort of thing. It's less so now because with the internet, you know, you can get everything immediately anywhere in the world. But then if you, if I was going to receive the latest cut of the film, it would have to be put onto a Betamax and then FedEx. So it would be a week later by the time I got it. And then to send them ideas based on that, a DAT or a cassette or something or a CD, it would be like that would have to be FedEx. So then, then it would be a week after I got it. So two weeks after the change, they might hear some music. Whereas now it's like, it's almost like the next day I'd get the cut in the morning and then work on it. And then you could immediately email them the music. So that that's all changed. But then you had to kind of, lived there in, in hotels. So it wasn't the happiest time socially because you literally were locked away in a place. You know, you weren't at home, you weren't around anyone you knew really. So it was unsociable, but it meant you got the work done. Mankind, that word should have new meaning for all of us today. We can't be consumed by our petty differences anymore. We will be united in our common interest. Perhaps fate that today is the 4th of July and you will once again be fighting for our freedom not from tyranny oppression or persecution but from annihilation we're fighting for our right to live to exist and should we win the day the 4th of July will no longer be known as an American holiday, but as the day when the world declared in one voice, we will not go quietly into the night. We will not vanish without a fight. We're going to live on. We're going to survive. Today, we celebrate our Independence Day. I'd be remiss not to ask you about your collaboration with Edgar Wright, with whom you did Hot Fuzz in 2007. Edgar is the kind of director who enjoys a hybrid of songs and original score when it comes to building a film soundtrack. How does his choice for songs inform the music you'll later compose to accompany them? Edgar is a very specific director. He is a sort of frame-accurate director. Every frame is known to him and the possibility for improvement in every part of every frame is known to him his thing is to try and push and to experiment and try different things in a constant effort to improve what's there you know to change what's there and make the most of what's there but he's he's very specific about music about found music about source music and about songs and i think those sequences where songs are are already in his head before he even starts shooting i mean before we started he gave me a sort of like a mood uh, CD, like all the music that he liked that sort of represented the world of Hot Fuzz. And some of those songs made it into the movie and some didn't, but it was a way of educating me into what was in his head a bit. So when we actually got to the score elements, he knew that they were going to be score and he knew that they were. There might be one or two moments where might, there might have been songs and we tried it with score, but he always knows where everything has to be. The good thing about his choice of music is that it's very eclectic, it's hugely appropriate. And it sort of gives you license to do things you might not otherwise do. His take on Hot Fuzz was to try and do like a Tony Scott film, to make it feel like, and certainly what I did was to like take a very serious approach to it, but in a way that possibly people might look at each other and go like, oh, are you serious? 
And you go, look, we are really serious. So I played it really straight, which I think is the only thing you can do in comedy, is to play it straight and honest. But because of the sort of eclectic nature of the songs that surround it, it felt like there weren't really any rules as far as the score was concerned. So we had this kind of sort of action theme, you know, the hot fuzz theme, which was a, you know, sort of balls out, guns in the air, as they do in the movie, shouting, ah. And other bits were properly, you know, sort of sensitive, even though there's something funny happening, you know, it was like an honest, uh, like especially coming from Nick Frost's character, really honest about the way that he felt. And then the big shootout at the end, which was like a sort of action fest thing, which was like part Morricone, wet Wild West shootout, part sort of high-tech American actioner. And all the time, though, funny stuff going on. So it meant that I could be a little bit more out there and use techniques and use ideas that perhaps you might not otherwise do because the visual supports it, but also the music surrounds it supports it as well. You ever fired two guns whilst jumping through the air? No. You ever fired one gun whilst jumping through the air? No. Ever been in high speed pursuit? Yes, I have. You ever fired a gun whilst in high speed pursuit? No. What about lethal weapon? No. You seen Die Hard, do? No. Bad Boys 2? No. You ain't seen Bad Boys 2. As you look to the future of your career, I want to ask you about a project you've been discussing now for several years, a new album of entirely original material. How do you balance passion projects like this between your other work in film and television? Every time I start doing it, I think like, well, there's always something else that someone wants me to do and their thing's more important than my thing. I mean, I, I still would like to do it. I don't know why I'm not doing it. I guess, yeah, I really don't know. It's like every year I say, okay, I'm not going to do anything for the first three months this year. I'm just going to make a record. I'm just going to make a record. And things end up happening and things, you know, people say, can you do this? Can you do that? And before you know it, like the week's gone. Can you come and do this talk here? Can you do this charity thing there? Can you do this? Can you judge that? Can you be on the BAFTA jury? Can you write this for us? Can you do a talk? And then week's gone, then another week's gone, and then the month's gone, and then you think, oh, I'm supposed to finish by now. Well, I just feel like busy is productive and productive is good. Well, you just got to do it. You know, it's like, it's the thing that I always tell other people. It's like, you know, I, I used to get really annoyed when, when people turned up and said, if only I had this, that or the other, I could do it. And I thought like, well, I knew the amount of what you can get done with very little. And it is just a matter of doing it. So there is somewhere in this a psychological barrier to me starting something just for me which is my own work, you know, and it's interesting. And maybe that's, maybe that's why I've sort of chosen film music because there's a lot of me in it, but it's not about me. It's always about the film. But anyway, I don't know how many times I've said I'm going to do it. And every time I promise myself, I end up not doing it. Maybe I should just say I'm never, ever, ever going to do it. And then, and then, because I've got stuff. I mean, I've got material and I need to write more, but I have got stuff. And I think I know in my head how it's going to be. And I think it, for me, it'd be really interesting. And I think it would be personally, you know, I'd like it and that's the only thing that matters I just got to do it but you know maybe everything's maybe my whole career is, is, is an enormous procrastination event to stop me doing that record like here we are in my studio kind of taken you know like the time that I've got off rather than make a record I've decided to tear the whole thing apart and rebuild it probably just about in time to start someone else's project and not mine. So allow me to wrap things up. You've won an Emmy for your score for the BBC series Sherlock and a Grammy for Independence Day. If you could give one piece of advice to David Arnold in his mid-20s, what would it be? Mm. Well, I know what I was doing when I was 20. I was sort of doing student films and I was also doing like day jobs because where I came from, there wasn't really, and it's also, also from the sort of family part, there wasn't really an understanding about how you got into a career in the arts. You know, it was very much a sort of working class 
we worked, you know, like people didn't go to college, people didn't do degrees, and most of the people in my family are sort of manual kind of labouring or working people, and not, I suppose, careers as such, you know, they were doing jobs. And I think that was the expectation. And so it was all a bit of a mystery, you know, how this might happen or even what, what it could be. And I think it wasn't until I was about 26, I think, and I was doing all sorts of day jobs, you know, just to be able to live really. And I was doing student films at the same time. But I actually came to Los Angeles in 1986, I was 24. That's the first time I was there. And I saw people working in the industry and I thought, this is like normal for them, you know, like working in film is normal. It's not, you know, some kind of mysterious, you know, gold leaf edged cloud that everyone perches on and, and, and sprinkles glitter over everyone. It's like, it's an actual thing, it's work. And I thought, I want to do that. And I came back thinking, you can't do that and do something else at the same time. It's either one or the other. And that was the point when I sort of quit any work I was doing. I go, okay, I'm going to concentrate on doing this. It's the only way you can do it is actually do it. Thinking about it, like the record that I've been talking about for years, thinking about it doesn't get anything done. You know, the only thing that will get it done is doing it. And if you don't do it, then you've got no idea, A, if it's going to be any good, B, if you're going to be any good in, in it or at it, and C, if anyone's going to like it. So I think if I was telling me at 20, I would say, sod the consequences, just just try it. Because the worst thing that can happen is it won't work. And then you can go back to doing those jobs anyway. Which is kind of what I said at 26, you know, but in a way, I suppose, it was six years. Possibly wasted, but I mean, in that time, I was still doing a lot of student films. Uh, so I'm still doing stuff, but not as concentrated. But I think I might have got there a little bit earlier. Had I done that? But yeah, just, you know, be bold. Because especially in the world today where there's no, there seems to be no real guarantee of anything, I think the idea of security seems to have disappeared in terms of employment. So you've got nothing to lose. I mean, I lived at home. I mean, it was embarrassing. You know, I never had any money. I never went anywhere. I never did anything. And I didn't get paid till I was 31 doing anything with music. So up to that point, you know, you'd think like you should be doing all these other things and building a career. And, and, and then everything sort of happened and I was sort of ready for it, you know, prepared for it and, and reasonably calm about it and relaxed about it. And I think it's a good idea to know what you want, but ultimately the only thing you can do is to do it. David, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show and I truly do look forward to everything that's going to come next. Thank you. And there you have it, folks. Thank you to David for welcoming us into his private studio in London to record this episode. And to First Artists Management, who were crucial in setting this conversation up. Along with Eric, of course, for doing the final mix on all of these episodes. If you enjoy our program, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter for early reveals of which guests we'll be interviewing next. Please help us by taking a moment to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Send your favorite episode to a friend to help fellow cinephiles and new listeners discover the show. I'm Brando Benetton, and you have been listening to Soundstage Access.